Well, good evening. It's good to be here with you. We're going to turn to John's Gospel and uh, chapter 17. We're going to look at uh, the Lord's Prayer, not the Lord's Prayer that he taught the disciples. That's really the disciples' prayer, but the Lord's Prayer. And as we've gathered around his table, so we'll consider uh, the profound depths of this passage is that the Lord is at prayer in the shadow of the cross. And what is the deepest desires of his heart? What is it that is on his heart and mind? And what is it that he wants his people to know? Uh, And what is it that he is thinking about as he considers uh, what lies before him in the cross? Well, we'll read the whole of uh, John 17 together. It would be uh, tremendous if you had that in front of you. Um, it's far more important than anything I have to say, uh, and we want to hear God's word together. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you, for I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world, Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. 
the glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory. And you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. And this is God's word. Let's pray briefly together. Father, as we come to your word this evening, we are conscious that we are greatly out of our depth, that we stand on holy ground. And as we consider uh, your prayer to the Father, as we consider what you prayed for before the cross, Lord, we uh, need your help to understand and to appreciate uh, your word. And so we ask for it and for your great glory. Amen. Well, as we say, if ever we were out of our work, uh, out of our depth, it is, uh, it's here. As we listen in to what the Lord prays for before the cross, there's almost something improper about it, as if we were listening in uh, to a conversation that somehow we weren't part of. But that is not the case because we very much are part of it. And the Lord is praying in the presence of his disciples. And indeed, he is praying for, as we'll see, firstly himself, and then for the apostles, those who are closest to him, and then for the entire people of God. And for all those who belong to him, he prays for them. And so we can see uh, and we can ask the question, well, what is it that the Lord wants for his people? And what is it that the Lord wants for my life? You know, if you were able to get the answer to that question, you would be pretty interested in it, isn't, wouldn't you? What does the Lord want for your life? What does he want you to do? And here, amazingly, before the cross, in this intimate prayer with his father, that is exactly what is on his heart what the Lord wants for his people. And sometimes, perhaps in, in your Bible, it's uh, entitled the High Priestly Prayer of Jesus. And that's because of the numerous parallels with the work of the high priest, particularly on the Day of Atonement, where he would consecrate himself prayerfully before the work of atoning for the sins of the people. Um, and he would represent the names of the people of God before him. And interestingly, on the, on the garments of the high priest, he would have the shoulders and, and the breastplate, and he would carry the names of the people of Israel into the presence of God, into the most holy place. Well, that's what the Lord is doing here. You know, there's a specificity, there's a definite nature to the Lord's work. We'll see 
uh, how he considers his work. He is going to the cross for those whom the Father has given to him. You know, the high priest going into the holiest place of all wasn't going in on behalf of a, a hypothetical group of people. No, he was going in for the nation, for the people, for those names that he bore literally on his body. And as we consider this prayer, as we'll see, the Lord is bearing our names specifically, definitely, before the Father in prayer. So we're going to really skim this, (laughs) you'll be pleased to know, Uh, and we're going to look at it in three sections. Um, And the, the, the prayer unfolds in three main sections. And it's a bit like if you take a stone and threw it in the water and you get circles that move out the way from it. Uh, so there's the first point of contact and then the circles move out. And the first section of the prayer is how the Lord prays for himself and that's verses 1 to 5. And that considers his work, his glorious work that he contemplates and prays for. And then secondly, from verse 6 to 19, he prays for his disciples for the apostles. And you'll see just by looking at it that this is the longest section of the prayer by quite a stretch, and that's maybe quite surprising. And we'll think, why is it that the Lord is praying for them, and what is it that he's praying for? And then finally, from 20 to 26, the Lord prays for the whole people of God. And just as the high priest would pray pray and prepare himself in this same fashion, firstly for himself, And then for his household, those who were closest to him. And then for the whole nation, the Lord follows that pattern by praying for himself, praying for his apostles, and then praying for the people of God as a whole. So let's uh, let's consider um, these three sections uh, together. And we're going to see firstly uh, his glorious work, the work that uh, lies to hand as he considers the cross. We'll see that uh, firstly, as Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted his eyes to heaven and says, Father, the hour has come. And in John's gospel, the hour is a a constant refrain that comes um, at several points. And then it begins the upper room discourse, the upper room ministry in chapter 13. 13 verse 1, it says, Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father. And then down to verse 3, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and that he was going back to God. So this hour has now arrived and it is the hour of his glorification. It's the hour where he would be most glorified. And he's glorified by the means of the cross as he must go back to the Father. As he leaves the world, he is glorified in the cross. And you can see that from verses 1 to 5, five times in five verses, we have this repeated theme of glory. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Verse 4, I glorified you on the earth. Verse 5, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world existed. The cross is the climax of the Lord's ministry. 
and it is the climax of his glorification. That's how the Lord thinks about the cross, and that's how he wants us to think about it. It is a great triumph. It is a great victory, and it is the source of his glory. It's what we glory in and delight in, the cross. But then secondly, we'll see it's a a work that is glorious, but we'll see that it is a definite work. Just as the priest bore specific names on his shoulders and breastplate, the names of the tribes of Israel, so the Lord bears specific names, those who belong to him, those whom the Father had given to him. He bears their name and represents them before the Father. You see that in verse 2. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And then you see it in verse 24 as well. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me. This is a specific people that the Lord is praying for. There's a definite, a specific nature to the Lord's work. The, the, the cross did not merely accomplish a hypothetical or a potential salvation, but it accomplished a real salvation for a real and specific people. And that's what we remember as we come round the Lord's table. That's what we delight in, that the cross actually saves. It does not merely make potential to be saved, but it saves. And the Lord saved his people at the cross. We've seen the specific nature of the work of the high priest. Well, the Lord says himself in John 10 that I give my life for my sheep. Specific. Paul could say in Acts 20 to the Ephesian elders that you have been, the church has been bought with the precious blood of God. The church, specific. And here we see that that is what is on the heart of the Lord uh, as he anticipates. Thirdly, we see it's a finished work. Finished. Verse 4, I glorified you on the earth, having finished or accomplished the work that you have given me to do. And interesting, really, the, the main other time that this is used in John's gospel where you have it, in, in verse 4 there, the Lord, even before the cross, could say that I have finished the work. Then in John 19, as the Lord uh, is about to give his spirit, he could say after uh, John 19, verse 28, after this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. And then down to verse 30, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. Finished. You see the link that John is specifically drawing in the, in the ministry of the Lord. The Lord understands that this is a finished work. In contrast to the Day of Atonement, which was an annual uh, event, an event that would be repeated. Well, this great high priest, as both priest and sacrifice, finishes the work, definite, completed, no need to be uh, repeated. It is finished. You know, I've heard apparently uh, that if you get a ticket for a speed camera, I've only heard, 
Uh, but you get, a, you get a letter through the door and it tells you that you need to do X, Y, and Z. And you so dutifully do. And then you get another letter back that says that this account is now fully paid. This account is now fully paid. And you get a sense of relief at that. It's finished. It won't be opened again. There's no further action required. Well, that is a a very pale illustration and poor illustration. But the work of Christ finishes salvation for his people. Something that we should delight in and rejoice in that it will never be reopened. It's fully settled. So as we ask the question as we go through this prayer, what is it that Jesus wants you to do? You know, we'll ask this in these three sections. What does Jesus want you to do? Well, he wants you to trust in that finished, definite work. That's what's on his heart as he considers what lies before him. He wants his people to trust in the finished and definite work that he achieves at the cross. So that's section one, his glorious work. That's what he prays for, firstly. Then secondly, let's look at a 6 to 19 And this section then widens out to the apostles, those who are literally listening to him, those who have spent a number of years with him, and he turns to pray for them. He says in verse 6, I've manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me. We've already said that if you look just even at the size structurally of the prayer, um, This is by far the longest section. That's maybe quite surprising when you think of there's five verses spent on the work of the Lord uh, and then considerably more on the apostles and then less on the climax of the prayer. So this this section must be of great importance. And it is because if you were to think uh, that John is writing his gospel after the Messiah has departed, and after the the temple has been destroyed. And and the question that, that Jewish people that John is evangelizing would be asking is, where is the glory of God now to be found? Where is the authentic religion of God? Where is the access to God now to be found? And Christ points here, and John is pointing here that uniquely it is to be found in the word and ministry of the apostles. And that's what the Lord is praying for in this section. And that's really what the whole of the upper room discourse is about. It's a defense. It's a validation. It's an apologetic for the work and ministry of the apostles. And if you start to think of it like that, I'm sure you could put the pieces together because in John 14, They are the ones alone who know the way to the Father. In John 15, the apostles, again, are the ones who are the branches of the true vine. In John 16, they are the ones who alone will receive the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. And then John 17, in this section, they alone are the ones who receive the very words of Christ. So, What the Lord is doing in this whole section, and specifically in this section of his prayer, is there is a validation 
and an affirmation of the ministry and the importance of the word of the apostles. You can see that if you look at John 16 and look at verse 12 down to, down to 15, just we'll scan this, you'll see the import of the, the, what is directed constantly towards the apostles. This is the promise of the Spirit that the Lord is, is saying, I still have many things to say to you, apostles. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you, apostles, into all truth. Verse 13, he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, verse 14, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you, the apostles. You see the import of their ministry? And that's then what we have in this section, again, from verse 6 down to 19. You see in verse 8, uh, that, and again, we're just scanning this, but we're trying to set it in its context. Verse 8, the Lord says of chapter 17, I have given them the words that you gave me. No one else. Verse 9, I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world. Verse 11, they alone are the ones who are kept by the Father. Verse 14, again, I have given them your word. Verse 18, I have sent them into the world. So the import of this section is in the, the work and ministry of the apostles. And the import of this for us that live in a pluralistic age that want to affirm all means and all roots and all uh, faiths and options have some form of credibility and will all muddle through in the end somehow? Well, no. Because Jesus alone gives his affirmation and validation to no one else but to the apostles and to their word. And he says, these men here, they alone speak for me. These men here alone carry the authority of my word. You see the import of this? And then for us, you see how diligently we should listen to the word of the apostles. You see how diligently we need to stand united to the apostles' word. We'll consider that in a second. The Lord prays for unity. What does that unity involve? What does that unity look like? And the apostles alone have the approval of the Lord Jesus. Just a couple of weeks ago, I was in, I, I was out in the States and I was in uh, Washington and I had used this illustration before uh, several times, but I was able to actually see it in action. And I was in Washington and the other side of the river, there is Arlington Cemetery, which uh, among other things has the tomb of the unknown soldier, which is guarded 24 seven. And I've used this illustration before, but I was able to be there and to see it. And on the hour, every hour, there is a ceremony that takes place with great dignity among three guards. There is one who is finishing his watch of guard at the tomb, and that there is another two come out, and one conducts the ceremony, and it's a passing over. It's an exchange between one guard to the other. And they're inspected up and down and 
uh, all very dignified. And then really the crunch of it comes that the, the guard who's conducting the ceremony says one to the other, transfer your orders. And the one guard who's passing out says to the other, orders remain as directed. Orders remain as directed. And that really is the apostolic transition. You know, there's no deviation, no new revelation. New, no new fresh understanding other than the apostolic word. And that's what the Lord prays for here. Orders remain as directed. So in the light of the context of John, a departed Messiah and an ended temple, where can the glory of God now be found? Well, it can be found alone in the ministry of the apostles and on their words. So what does Jesus want you to do? There's a repeated refrain, a repeated question. What does Jesus want you to do with your life? He wants you to listen to his apostles, and he wants you to build your life upon their word. For to reject them and to reject their authority is to reject God himself. Well, let's see lastly and quickly then, uh, this final section um, from 20 down to 26, where the Lord bridges out another circle and, and prays for the entire people of God. I do not ask for these only. And notice the link between these two sections. It's staggering, really, if you think about it. Uh, I do not ask for these only, but also for all those who will believe in me. How is that possible? How is it possible to believe in Jesus? Verse 20. Through their word. Now, the, the Lord is, is clear of the necessity of the ministry of disciples for people to believe in him. The importance of word ministry. The importance of teaching and explaining and unfolding in simple, competent, yet profound ways. The message of the apostles. For well, that's the chief way that people come to believe. In fact, the Lord says, the only way that people come to believe in me through their word. And then we have this request in verse 21 that they may all be one. That's a, a famous verse, this, the prayer of the Lord for, for unity. And it's often bandied around. I, I don't mean that. I, I mean it can be taken and just lifted and said, well, we need to have unity. We need to have visible unity. You know, the ecumenical movement, we need to work together. And um, it's, the, it's the motto of the YMCA as well. And uh, there's much that's good about that. But there is a fundamental misunderstanding of what the Lord means by this unity. What does the Lord mean that his people would be one? Does it mean that we just all hold hands and regardless of what we believe, we're, we're all one, we're all one together? You know, I heard someone said to me once, you know, that labels are for jam jars, uh, as if, you know, labels aren't important. You know, doctrine isn't important. We don't want to divide over such things. I just kind of listened, but I should have been quicker to say, yeah, labels are also for medicine jars as well. And that's a great deal more important. It matters. It matters. See, what the Lord is praying for here in this unity is unity 
with the apostolic word. That's the basis of unity. It's not simply a kind of closing, closing their eyes and it doesn't matter what we all believe, we all, you know, we'll all muddle through. No. The Lord is saying, for those who believe in me through their word, that they would be one, that they would be one collectively with the apostolic word. You know, so I suppose that's, you know, that's why as much as we would want to aspire to an ecumenical unity, that we can't just simply ignore doctrinal divisions. The Lord prays for unity that is based on being one with the word of the apostles. So our repeated refrain, what does Jesus want you to do with your life? Well, he wants you to stand firmly and unflinchingly upon the word of the apostles. And you might say, well, (laughs) that's pretty hard to do. That's quite hard to do these days. And yes, it is. And it was hard to do then. Look at verse six, uh, chapter 16, verse 33. In the world you will have trouble. You will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Yes, that is difficult and it's becoming increasingly difficult. And the Lord acknowledges that uh, in this discourse. But there is a day coming. There is a day coming of vindication. And that's what runs through this last section. Three times it comes that so that the world may believe, so that the world may know. Even though the world does not know three times that refrain, there is a day coming where it will know. And there will be a day of vindication and where the Lord will be glorified and the apostolic word will be proven to be true and valid and right. So although it's hard The Lord prays that we stand united with the word of the apostles. That is what's on his heart. And then perhaps even more profound than that, the Lord then prays in verse 24, better still, that he prays those whom you have given me, that specific definite group of people, those whom you have given me may be with me where I am. And just as it began with glory, it ends with glory may be with me where I am to behold my glory. You know, that's the prospect that lies ahead of the church. That's the prospect that lies ahead of those who stand united with the word of the apostles. Yes, there'll be a day coming where the world will see and there will be a vindication of Christ. But for the church, there will be a day where we will be with him and we will behold him in his glory. Sometimes at Wimbledon, um, the winner at Wimbledon um, wants to scale up the side of the stand because they want to get up to be with those that they are closest to. And here the Lord prays for those that he wants to be with him those who is closest to, those who have suffered with him, those who delight in his glory. He wants them to be with him. It's profound. Now let that prospect then, that vindication and that ultimate day of being with the Lord, help us to stand in unflinching unity with the word of the 
apostles. So we ask the question, what does Jesus want for your life? Well, we've had the amazing privilege to listen in to his requests and his consideration of himself and his apostles and then the entire people of God. And he wants us to trust, firstly, in his glorious and definite finished work. He wants us to listen to the apostles as his appointed messengers. And he wants us to stand united with them unwaveringly on their word so that uh, we can look forward to the day of vindication and a day where we will ultimately be with him. I, I commentator of a previous generation said, and with this we'll close on this passage, let the world condemn us a thousand times. This alone ought to satisfy us that Christ acknowledges us to be his heritage and pleads with the Father on our behalf. Amen.